This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, Adam. Whoa! I got it. We're going to put Travis on a new task this week, and it's pretty simple. Travis, I think you'll enjoy it. I want you to create bots that automatically respond to right-wingers with preposterous and automatically respond to our side with indeed. And we're just going to do the indeed and preposterous bots. I'm on it. Give me a couple of days. Yep. Yeah, we, we should make stickers too, don't you think, Adam? Oh, at the very least. Yeah. In addition to the what the hack bear, we can have what the hack indeed and what the hack preposterous. It can be like a choose your own adventure. If you want a lie, go to page five. If you want the truth, Stay right here. <laughs> Welcome to What the Hack, a show about hackers, scammers, and the people they go after. I'm Adam, cyber truth seeker. I'm Bo, cyber sibilant. And I'm Travis, cyber vitriol factory. <laughs> <laughs> and today we talk mis and disinformation online with Media Matters' Angelo Corazon. <laughs> Angelo, my friend. Welcome to What the Hack. Hi. You're an incredibly busy guy these days, so it means a lot that you're able to spend some time with us today. Oh, please. I'm happy to. Before we get started, we'd like for our listeners to get to know a little bit about our guest. So, first off, where are you coming to us from? I'm in Washington, D.C. One of my favorite places where there's a great deal of insanity going on these days. There, there is. You can feel it. <laughs> That's for sure. So you're the CEO of Media Matters. For our listeners who may not know much about it, what does Media Matters do? Yeah, so Media Matters is a media watchdog organization. Uh, we're about uh, 100 or so staff and mostly researchers. And what we do every day is, you know, we live monitor about 60,000 hours of media a year. So that's television, radio, podcasts, that's live. So that's somebody listening to it in real time um, as it's happening. And then we archive and analyze about a million hours or more. Um, so we're able to look at a pretty broad section of what's happening in the information landscape. And we do the same thing online. And what we look at is specifically, we try to identify misinformation that metastasizes, things that spill over and start to affect, you know, the broader conversation. You know, is it dragging the rest of the news media into either amplifying or privileging the lies, the misinformation, because that is where you start to then get harms and, and effects as a result of it. And then what we do is, you know, a series of interventions. Some of it is early warning. We say, hey, here's this thing that's starting. Here, here are some things that can happen right now to stop it before it spreads. So how do you perform the analysis? So it, start, it starts daily. I mean, we have most of the, we, we're, we have people working 20 hours a day. So we actually, there's only four hours during the day where there's not somebody doing, or a team working live in real time. And what they basically do is uh, it starts, it all starts with media monitoring scans. And what we try to look for are anomalies. So things that are weird. Hey, is this different? That's, that's, ab that's abnormal. Here's this. All of a sudden, if we're monitoring these message board communities, for example, we'll notice a spike in a very specific narrative. Oh, they're making this claim about this school in Ohio. That's weird. It's popping up on all these boards in a really short period of time. That's different. Does that suggest that somebody's trying to 
manufacture a new attack? Does that suggest that there's uh, something organically happening? Um, is that disinformation? Is there, is there some cheating and manipulation going on? So, but that's what it starts with. We look for either anomalies or we look for cross-pollination. Is there a, a new line of attack that's cutting across a, diff, a few different sectors? Um, so some of it is part science, it's data-driven. Some of it is just gut, art. You know, you do it enough, you start to see patterns. It's like, you know, I, I think we do a better job sometimes, but it's kind of like the weather, the weather people, right? It's like, you, you know, you have models, uh, you can predict, uh, and, and that's what we do. And we make a call every day is, hey, this is going to be a thing. You know, a lot of times when we're when we are effective, it we prevent it from spilling over or creating harm in the first place. So, for instance, um, last year we identified on TikTok um, in the, on the back end of May, uh, you know, June is Gay Pride Month, and we had identified that um, we we spun up a series of monitoring operations, and and what we noticed was that if you engage with mildly homophobic content. On TikTok, within four videos, you would start getting a video that promoted you to encourage violence against a gay person during Gay Pride Month. And so, what they were trying to do was use the algorithm to connect them to potentially individuals that would be likely to commit violence against gay people. And what we did is then, because we identified that early, we went and, bent and scattered, found dozens of examples of sort of that seed material. And then we went to the platform and said, here's how, here, here are all these bad actors. Here's what they're planning to do leading into Gay Pride Month. You can stop this, right? Not just by taking the videos down, by tinkering with your recommendation engine so that you're not actually promoting this very specific type of, of, of content to individuals. And that's an example of the kind of stuff that we do every day, where we identify something that's starting, and we try to nip it in the bud to the best extent we can. Let's go back to the beginning. What inspired you to get involved in, in this area? Part of it was procrastination and part of it was Glenn Beck. Um, and so what basically happened is I was in my second year of law school um, back in 2009. And uh, Glenn Beck was just on, on the rise. He was a Fox News host at the, at the time. And he was, he was really you know, building an enormous amount of political power because it was both incredibly profitable. Um, it, he was barred far and away Fox's most profitable host at the time. And he was doing something distinct from other parts of the right-wing media. And so, like I said, I was procrastinating. And then Glenn Beck was everywhere. And what concerned me was that if he, if his model continued to be as profitable as it was, that we would basically see more, that the rest of the media, including in starting with Fox, would look more like Glenn Beck in a couple of years than, say, what it had. Um, and so what I started doing on Twitter was contacting Glenn Beck to advertisers that summer basically just telling them what he was saying and urging them to, to not support him. And that sort of pulled me into this larger world of misinformation, the broader media landscape. And I really became pretty convinced that the, it didn't really matter, that, that, every, that what the media touched affected everything. And, you know, at that point, you know, we were still, we were on the back, we were in the middle of a recession. I was obviously in law school, so I had a mountain of debt. Uh, and I was just thinking about what the future looked like. And it just felt like no matter what I wanted to do or could do that in some way, shape or form, how the news media was dealing with it was going to be either influencing its trajectory to make it better or worse. And so that's kind of how I got into it. So you were worried that the rest of the media would look like Glenn Beck. What happened with Beck is that what he was doing at the time was taking conspiracies that typically were relegated to the fringes. And it sounds so quaint, it's really hard to remember this time. 
But in 2009, their message board communities, the fever swamps, Twitter, these things were very small. So most people didn't have easy access to the fever swamps, the French. The fringe was the fringe. It sort of stayed there. That's why it was called the fringe. So if you wanted to find really radical conspiracy theories, you'd have to really work to find it. What Glenn Beck was doing, though, was he was plucking conspiracies and false attacks from these communities, you know, and turning them into mainstream narratives. So, for example, one of his most popular programs at the time was a claim that Barack Obama was building concentration camps. And then his second most big story at the time was that Barack Obama and General Motors were conspiring to put microphones in everybody's cars so that they could not only listen to individuals' conversations and track them, but that they so, so that they could then, after they've analyzed and identified all their enemies, kill them. Just turn off their cars mid-thing, mid just k- kill them all. And so what happened, though, is that a bunch of people got very excited, right? Because this is, wow, this is fantastic. These tales are amazing. Um, so his ratings shot through the roof. He had bigger ratings at 5 o'clock than Bill O'Reilly, who was the king of cable news for over a decade had. And his revenue shot up as a result of it as well. And so when I say that it would have been the future, he was there was such a perverse incentive structure for others to replicate that model because it was actually driving not just ratings, but an enormous amount of revenue. All kinds of new revenue came in because he was doing something that hadn't been done yet on cable news. There sure is a lot of anger out there. We've seen it at Tea Party protests and healthcare town meetings on cable news and talk radio. And whether he's channeling that anger or stirring it up, 45-year-old Glenn Beck is certainly capitalizing on it. More than 9 million people listen to him each week on radio. As many as 3 million watch him every day on Fox News. But is he a madman as Time Magazine brands him? Is he bad for America? We talked with Glenn Beck. There's nothing quite as stunning as seeing your face on the cover of Time magazine. In a very flattering shot, I might yes, add. It, though. These days, there's no escaping Glenn Beck. And this is the third most listened to show in all of America. Hello. His face is everywhere, and his when politics are in yours. Maybe we should ask ourselves this Beck question. claims he defies labels. Hello. You agree with President Obama on gay marriage, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. So you think abortion should be illegal? Yes. You oppose a constitutional amendment banning flag burning. I collect flags. The most offensive thing you can do is burn one in, dis- in disrespect. But that should be protected. And perhaps most surprising was his confession about Hillary Clinton. I can't believe I'm saying this. I think I would have much preferred her as president and may have voted for her against John McCain. I think John McCain would have been worth, <laughs> how about this? I think John McCain would have been worse for the country than Barack Obama. With with How's Glenn that? Beck, His with this new Glenn. structure of looking like news but being entertainment, but not just entertainment, but entertainment of a purely ideological nature, how do you approach, what is the formula for approaching something that presents itself as news but is actually opinion? One of the advantages, you know, these things aren't happening in a vacuum. What makes the What makes right-wing misinformation so pernicious is that it has an echo chamber around it. What is the echo chamber you're referring to? So in in part, a big part of the echo chamber is talk radio, um, but then also it's online. You know, there was only a brief period in time where Democrats actually had an advantage on the internet. But starting around 2013, the asymmetry started to look more and more like talk radio. 
And in fact, it got so bad that between 2016 and, and most of 2020, on, on any given day, if you looked at the total share of voice of online conversation, we track this daily, about 60, 40 to 45, 60%, depending on the day, but it would never, ever be less than 40, 40%, typically would hover in at least more than half, uh, would be right-wing voices, right-wing entities, right-wing outlets. Then it'd be about 12 to 15% would be left-leaning, and then the rest would be chopped, uh, uh, sort of split between national and local news. So every day, the majority of stuff consumed online was right-wing. So that's the echo chamber. So we went from having like soccer moms to Trump dads. That's right. That's exactly right. That's a great way to put it. And that really became the dominant, you know, so the echo chamber is that. And what it means is that you can take a narrative that exists, that gets plucked, that gets sort of refined, and you can hammer it away. You can make something out of absolutely nothing. And then you can attack the rest of the news media for not covering it. You say, oh, look at them. They're carrying water for Democrats, right? And you, you, they're just doing liberal bias. And what happens is, is that if you're a journalist, you care about to some extent, your reputation. So in an effort to inoculate yourself against these bad faith of right-wing attacks, you start to at least give lip service to or credit or credence to these conspiracies or these attacks or these false lines. You start to ask about the controversy, the question. And so you have to contain. And the way you contain it is by showing fruit of the poison tree. You can go to a news out and say, hey, that thing that's happening on Fox or that's percolating on talk radio right now that you're going to, or that, that congressman talked about, did you know that it started on the Daily Stormer website four days ago? which is a white nationalist publication, then it becomes radioactive, right? And the other strategy is you're not going to make these right-wing outlets good actors. The feature is the bug. They're designed to lie and misinform. So what you have to do is create the conditions where it's a lot either undermine them so that they can't operate that way. It's unsustainable. And that's usually financial pressure. Or uh, you can expose them enough so that their audiences cannibalize against each other. George Santos, for me, is a great example of the good work you've done. Because just the other day, you may have, I'm, I know you know, Angelo, and if you're listening, you may know this as well. Uh, he flashed a, a, a white nationalist sign at a crowd. Yeah. And now the reason we know that, and the reason we know that's the case is because Media Matters has gotten really good at pointing out where these things come from and what they mean. Yeah, that is a really good example that even something as simple as the OK symbol, which is that weird little hand gesture, that that is a reflection of uh, sort of a wink and a nod that that became part of the alt-right and these white supremacist communities were using. It was sort of their symbol. We made sure everybody knew that. And to uh, another example is, you know, everyone talks about or makes fun of, like, well, now it's a touchstone, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jewish space lasers. That was us. Um, because part of what happens now is that so much of our politics is actually a reflection of what's happening in the right wing media. And, and, and we and our argument was that we were showing that she was a creature of these communities because the rest of the news media at that time wasn't paying close enough attention to how how much she was an extremist. And that wasn't something she tweeted or posted about. We were monitoring message board communities and that she had said that in the third thread of a Facebook comment. She made a comment about Jewish space ladies. She made a bunch of other comments too, but that's the one that everybody latched onto because it, it is so just a clear example of, of them internalizing conspiracies. And there's dozens more. Doug Mastriano and paying white supremacists, who was a gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania, we found him paying a literally a white supremacist consultant. And when we called him out on it, he initially ignored it. And then we started to pressure the media for why they weren't asking questions. Why were they not asking a basic question about why he had a white supremacist, an actual white supremacist, um, on his payroll. Why was he paying not just on his payroll, but then he was also advertising in white supremacist outlet, one of them, which was Gab. 
And that's an example of where it matters is that so much of this stuff isn't just, I think people sometimes think, oh, misinformation is just fighting online, but it's not. That this is, the, you know, they're not just having random opinions or, you know, people just being wrong on the internet. What is actually happening here is that they're building power and then leveraging it to shape our politics and our culture. You know, there was a few day period after the 2020 election where Fox News accepted the election results. Um, they didn't challenge the election. They didn't say that it was stolen. But then One American News was out there. And One American News was out, was claiming that the voting machines were rigged. They were attacking Dominion. They were pumping it up with other conspiracies. The Trump campaign was amplifying the One American News segments. And within a short period of time, just a few days, they used One American News as a cudgel against the rest of the right-wing media. And all of a sudden, in mid-November, on a dime, Fox News went from accepting the election results to doing 774 segments over a two-week period explicitly attacking and calling it stolen. That is where the scaffolding for January 6th was built. It wasn't built in the fever swamps. It was built in that critical moment where Fox News went from accepting the results to not accepting the results. So that's what we try to do is to mitigate those harms to the best extent we can. Let's talk about weight loss. Most of us have been there, struggling with the ups and downs. You lose some weight, then it creeps back. But forget those endless cycles of juice cleanses, soup diets, and the latest fad workouts. There's a better way. The Rope Body Program pairs a weekly weight loss shot with a real lifestyle change so you can lose weight and actually keep it off. Need support? Rose got you covered every step of the way. And guess what? You can do it all from the comfort of your own home. No more doctor's appointments, no more waiting rooms. It's that simple. Ready to take charge of your weight? Head over to row.co slash Adam to sign up today. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in a year. That's with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.co slash Adam. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash A-D-A-M. This spring, get out there, enjoy the weather, and recapture the magic of riding a bike with electric e-bike. With an amazing variety of models built for riders of all abilities, it's never been easier to fall in love with riding again. Plus, every electric e-bike ships free and only requires quick, toolless assembly. This is my first ever e-bike, and the experience has just been great. I was a little bit intimidated at first because I hadn't gone biking in a while, but the 500-watt motor that the electric e-bike comes with really gives you a nice little boost, especially if you're trying to go uphill or pick up some speed. Data shows that e-bike riders take their bike out more often. That means... You get more exercise, more exploration, and wait for it, fresh air. And riding an e-bike isn't like, it's not cheating. It's just making it possible for you to be out there longer on each ride. And speaking of things going a little slower, you can finance an electric e-bike for as little as $49 a month. Get into spring with electric e-bikes, the number one selling e-bikes in the nation. Get your adventure started at electricebikes.com. And please mention that What the Hack with Adam Levin sent you in the post-checkout survey. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C ebikes.com Have you guys done an analysis on the on, on where the cross line is of making money and making problems? Where like is there is there a profit motive in changing their opinion about the election? 
Or is or is it is it ideological? So Fox, you know, this is also one of the advantages of being in the right wing media. You know, right wing radio could be twenty billion dollars in debt and somehow survive, right? I mean, Rush Limbaugh's bosses, see, and Sean Hannity, you know, all those programs, they were twenty billion dollars in the hole and yet still continued to operate. One of the things that happened when Glenn Beck was pushed off the air because of advertisers is that Roger Ailes, who was the boss of Fox News at the time, decided to rig the game. And what he did is he changed the economics. Fox News is the only commercial TV station in the country that does not need a single commercial. They could have zero dollars in advertising revenue and they would still have a 90 percent profit margin. You know, when you turn on your TV, your cable, whatever, and you go to flip the channels, the way that works is that cable companies pay each channel a nominal fee, a couple cents. Well, Fox decided that because their audience is so rapid, what they could do is they could, during these cable negotiations, they could bully, threaten, attack cable companies into jacking up the fees. And so Fox News is the second most expensive channel on everybody's cable bill. ESPN's number one. Um, it's about three times more expensive than, uh, than CNN. You get three channels with CNN. It's almost 10 times more expensive than MSNBC. MSNBC is like 23 cents a subscriber. Fox News is $2 and change a subscriber. And what they're, they're, and the way that they did it is they inoculated themselves against advertiser pressure by creating this guaranteed revenue stream. And One American News did the same thing when they tried. One American News is getting 12 cents a subscriber. In terms of market rate, they should have been close to a penny a subscriber. And what that meant is that One American News had almost 90% of their costs covered through their deal with DirecTV and Verizon, which no longer exists because of all the work that's happened the last couple of years. But they needed just a little bit of advertising revenue to be profitable. So to your question, the, what happened with Fox is very actually tied in less with advertisers and more with their audience. This is the thing that we're up against. And when I say we, it's like, you know, you bring quinoa to a barbecue where everyone has tomahawk steaks, you lose. And it's and, true. And, and we're up against, we're in a market where Fox actually has what their audience wants and their audience wants what they have in the same way that people wanted cigarettes back in the day. Cause it's easy. It's salty. It's fatty. It's sweet. It has like, it hits all, it's got umami. It's got everything people want, but the truth, everything, but the truth. And, and sometimes they have the truth. The best way to think about Fox at this point is less of them as a news channel and more as them as a lifestyle brand. And, and I think that's kind of what you're getting to is that there, it is so deep. It is an identity. And what that means is that when they pick up a storyline, it has huge amounts of persuasive power uh, beyond just their own audience. They're, they are a center of gravity in this broader right-wing media landscape. Now, look, I think one thing that we have to be mindful about is that we can't get so focused on the fight in front of us that we lose the fights that are emerging. Because if you and I were to have this conversation in five or six years from now, we would not be talking about Fox. We would be talking about Rumble and the Daily Wire. Those are going to be the new Fox News if we don't do something about them now. So, you know, there is a mitigation that has to happen with Fox, right? And an adaptation. They're always going to be there. There's some ways to get them at the edges. And it, the strategy worked for One American News because they hadn't fully adapted to this new cable environment. So we were able to intervene and to really tackle that, that pressure point. But I, I think that it's important to consider that the same playbook that happened with Fox um, back in the late 90s, is being rerun again with Rumble and Daily Wire. And just to put a fine point on it, Rumble, which is a video platform alternative to YouTube, 
has $350 million cash on hand right now. It is the fastest growing internet site, period. Rumble has $350 million cash on hand right now. And what that means is they can invest in programming. They can invest in people. They just put, you know, Donald Trump Jr. wants to launch a show. He goes to Rumble. They give him a couple million bucks. He's now got a show. They're doling out cash to creators. And the thing that the right has, and we shouldn't discount this, is that they have a generation of ditto heads. They have muscle memory in acting beyond just listening. And so, you know, when Rush Limbaugh ascended to, you know, you know, top radio, he had, you know, 20 plus million listeners. Um, and what he was saying every day was he, his audience understood this idea. They called themselves ditto heads because they wouldn't just listen. They would then go out and amplify and echo the things that he was saying on air. They would tell their friends. They would engage with in social networks. That they, that's why they call themselves ditto heads. And what that did, though, was build a generation where people really understood that your part of consuming this information also meant that, that you gave some kind of action on top of it. And so they have this muscle memory to, to, to act. That's how Alex Jones is able to survive, is that his audience understands that when you buy his powder that takes the estrogen out of the water to make you more manly, which is one of the things that he sells, one of my, one of the, one of my more favorite products that he sells, I think it's hilarious, um, is that it, you know, you're doing it not just to get the estrogen out of your system, but you're doing it because you're also supporting Alex Jones. You yeah, act. that's how I got this beard. That's how I got this big beard. <laughs> So we go back to TikTok because you were talking about the fact that you pointed out to them that they were promoting homophobic content and you started the, you know, the campaign to bring that to everyone's attention. My question is when you contacted TikTok, and I would assume this would also apply to when you contact Twitter and Facebook and the rest, because uh, we know certainly when you contact mainstream media, they respond, but with the internet folks, do, do they respond? Do they get back to you? It's hit or miss. I mean, I would say, I'll, I'll give an example where it works and when it doesn't. In 2019, we were really concerned about deep fakes and manipulated media. Not a single social media platform had a pro prohibition on deep fakes or manipulated media. And in fact, there was one video about, of Nancy Pelosi, who was the speaker at the time, that went viral and it seemed to show her, it was very heavily manipulated. It seemed to show her drunk or not co cognizant and it was the slurring, she had, the slurring one. Right. I remember that, yeah. And, you know, she had asked them to take it down, which they didn't. And I thought the bigger story wasn't that they didn't take it down, was their reason. And not a, and the platform has all said, it's not against our rules to post a manipulated video. And that was our, you know, it was like, well, we have to do something about this. And what we did is we really focused in on the platforms to show them that, that there were real political consequences for them and brand consequences if they were to let this proliferate. And in 2019, we started with Twitter. They were the first to break. They put in a place against manipulated media and deep fakes. And then the rest of the social media platforms followed. The same thing applies to QAnon. You know, not a lot. Facebook did not pay attention to us in 2020 when we were really pushing on how much QAnon had metastasized on their platform. By in August, though, when they said they were banning violent QAnon groups, what we did is we every single day, we showed a, we went to a different news outlet and had them write a story 
about, we were basically went into, into Facebook and said, you know, identified a few groups that broke their rules. Facebook said they banned violent killing on groups. We found a bunch that did. And a new outlet every day was showing how Facebook you know, wasn't enforcing their rules well. And the idea was that we would do that every day until eventually they took consistent enough action to ban it. And I will say that it took about a month, but they did in October of 2020. And that was a difference maker for the effectiveness of the, of the insurrection. Because at that time, the QAnon infrastructure on Facebook was the single largest source of online to offline action, period. Nothing was even close to it. It was bigger than the rest of the right-wing media combined in terms of just sheer audience size on the platform. It had the most kinetic energy. It was huge. And they lost all that overnight in October. So they lost a real powerful organizing tool. And so to your question, a lot of it is you have to have the research and the goods, and then you have to know where the pressure point is to identify it. And sometimes you have to be willing to keep pushing on it until, until you can get them to move. Sometimes they're not responsive, but a lot of times they are. And that's not because they're good actors, but because they think that there's more, there's more to it on the front end than the back end. And I'll give one more example. After Russia invaded Ukraine, a whole bunch of the major social media platforms put an announcement out there uh, saying, look how good we are. We took down all of these Russian disinformation networks on our platforms. And they, they, they did press releases. They got a bunch of great stories. The day after, we, uh, and this gets into how we find this stuff, we released a series of research reports. We didn't even go to them directly on this one because we wanted to make the point. Um, they left up all the Russian Spanish language disinformation networks. They left them all up. So they took down all the English language ones, did a whole big celebration because they wanted to get the accolades at the time, um, but left all the Spanish language ones up. And what we were trying to demonstrate was that unless you're willing to hold their feet to the fire, they won't take sufficient action. And the way we identify that is, you know, there's plenty of social media listening tools. So obviously everybody has those. That's not what's special. What is special, though, is that we focus really uh, on, on, it sounds like a dirty word, but it's not. It's infiltration monitoring, which is, you know, places that don't, you can't just buy the data online. Everybody can search Facebook. Everybody can search Twitter. What you can't search are private Facebook groups or closed Facebook groups that have 50, 60,000 members in them. What you can't search is the, the private Facebook group that we found Ron DeSantis in two elections ago, where it was a closed group of, you know, a few hundred sort of political figures and their, and their, their sort of staffers that were sharing ridiculous, absurd content, some of which he was then plucking up directly from the groups and mentioning it during the campaign trail. And we were able to show how he was actually parroting out things that he was getting from his Facebook group. Um, so what we try to do is we get into the communities where they're one layer behind the veil, and then also other networks where you can't buy the data. And that is, a, I think, the secret sauce of our monitoring is that what we do is we try to collect and look at, the same way we did for talk radio, places that you can't easily search. And you know, uh, I think the best illustration of that is when the New York Times, after the Buffalo shooting last year, wanted, you know, he was in, that shooter was radicalized online. 4chan was one of the places where he was radicalized, that online message board community. They knew what places, what, what uh, forums that he was a part of on 4chan, but what they didn't have was the data and they wanted to reconstruct his radicalization path. And what they did is they gave us a period of time and the, and the groups, because we collect all this, we were able to give them 10,000 messages um, of the communities that he was a part of over his radicalization timeline to, so that they could recreate his own experience of being radicalized. So that's because we have the resource. And so how do we track it? We look at the places that are not easily searchable and accessible because those are the nexus points or the places where, uh, where these things germinate. 
it in incubate. And that helps us either get early detection or alternatively, it helps us identify when false narratives are beginning to cross-pollinate. And that's when how we sort of sift out where we need to intervene. So here's the deal. I use Yahoo Finance. I use it to make money because it works, not just because they're a sponsor of the show. Heck, I've been using them for years before they ever called to become a sponsor. I do a lot of investing and I need to make split second financial decisions. And that's where Yahoo Finance comes in. I trade stocks and I trade options and you can't trade them in a vacuum. You gotta know what's going on. Yahoo Finance gives you the opportunity to look at the whole picture. I mean, breaking news, editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts. I love the customizable charts. They have it all. At Yahoo Finance, I'm part of a community of over 90 million users. You heard me. 90 million folks use Yahoo Finance because they're helping you on your way to financial success. Visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com, yahoofinance.com. So, Bo and Adam, you guys know I'm a bit of a uh, privacy geek, if you will. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah, totally. I, I really just don't like the idea that just about anyone can find you online, can find out where you live or your email address, or your phone number or anything. I just think that entire idea is super creepy. There's so much of my data already out there, but is there something that you can do? Yeah, actually, you can use Delete Me. Delete Me is a service that pretty much does the heavy lifting for you, where they go to all the data brokers that they have on file and uh, just pull your data and delete it on a regular basis. I use it. I like it. And they make it quick, easy, and safe to remove your personal data online. Well, yeah, with these data brokers, they can accumulate huge amounts of your personally identifiable information. And if all that information gets into the hands of a bad actor, that opens you up to a lot of risk. And if you act now, you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and use promo code WTH. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and enter promo code WTH at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash WTH, promo code WTH, which stands for What the Hack. And we thank you for supporting Delete Me and What the Hack. One thing I'm wondering about is, um, obviously, there's a lot of misinformation across a whole lot of different social networks. Is there one specific platform that you can point to that's uh, most effective for misinformation? Oh, boy. So I will say that, uh, and I think this is where it's a great loss. In terms of effective, that's tough. In terms of being a vanguard, though, was Twitter. Was Twitter. Twitter was a vanguard when it came to addressing mis and disinformation. And that, for a variety of reasons, it's smaller than the other platforms. Um, their audience is... is either is heavily centered around decision makers, brand conscious individuals like celebrities, there are more reporters there. And that didn't mean they were necessarily good, but what it meant is that they were more forward thinking than the other platforms. And what that meant is that you could then, they could take action against things first, and you could use that as a demonstration to pressure other social networks that well twitter did that and when january 6 happened and before that and the deplatforming of certain people whose names don't need to be mentioned because they hurt my mouth and you know but but when that happened it got decentralized and you found these 
private groups on Telegram and Signal and Rumble, every you know, different places where people could go yeah. and have conversations. You have moles. Do they ever get discovered? Uh, no. We have a really good system for doing it. And we've not been busted yet. And uh, no, we have not. And, you know, we have, and it's, and it's a fine line. I mean, I think that it's, it's a, it's, we don't do is we don't engage or pollute the stream even more. And that's something that's, that's obviously challenging, but it's important for research purposes because it helps identify, you know, attacks or when things are coming around the bend or where you need to put time, attention and resources. And, you know, what I would say about the, the atomization that you referenced, which is when things sort of scattered, there's something to that. The thing that's important to consider is, you know, when you're sort of thinking about these problems, there are multiple levels. And the thing that I'm always concerned with is not stopping bad things, right? No one ever says to Google, don't search, don't crawl bad websites, right? They say, don't make it the first search result, right? There's Holocaust denial on Google search results. It's just not supposed to be the front page, right? And so what happens is that when I, when I think what, what, what makes these, the, the platform so powerful and why I think the atomization and the deplatforming can work is that I'm not, the individual stories, the nonsense, it's always going to exist. Where it becomes really destructive is when you have an incredibly sophisticated recommendation engine identifying like-minded individuals who are not quite there yet and moving them down the funnel so that they start to be exposed then. Part of what made Alex Jones so weak compared to where he was, was that when he lost YouTube, he lost the ability to get new audience. YouTube, he was burned, you know, he has a very high churn rate. His audience gets fatigued and they filter out. That's why his audience is always shrinking and has been for years, is that it's not that he's, he's radically that different, it's that he lost that new pipeline of individuals because YouTube was always recommending new like-minded people to that program. And that's the same thing with these other deplatforming. The deplatforming is effective when you think about it in the context of, does this slow or stop the cancer from spreading? Yes. Now, it does create these pockets, um, but there's always been pockets. What's, what's made this different now than, say, the John Birchers is that you didn't have a massive algorithm connecting all these John Birchers and all these potential John Birchers to each other 50 years ago, right? You had, you just, you had people basically pamphleting, and that's not an effective way to scale. And so I think about it from that perspective. So in the context of all of this, what's your take on the new Twitter? In much the same way that Fox News changed the media landscape when it, when it was born, um, because it, was, it served as a counterbalance, at least at the time, they thought it was counterbalance to the rest of the news media. This idea that the news media was too reflexively liberal uh, and that you know, Fox was going to be fair and balanced, but really was going to be a counterweight to the rest of the news media. It's gonna, it, we have not had a, a seismic event in the, in the news media since the birth of Fox News. This is going to be as big in terms of the long-term effects and destructiveness. And, the, it's gonna, and it's gonna be in two dimensions. One, at minimum, we've lost the vanguard. So when it comes to identifying, fighting, thwarting new and emerging threats, we've now, a, a tool that was in the toolkit is gone. So you'll see, you, and we've already seen it, a slowing down of responsiveness to new, to new threats on, uh, on, on other platforms because they don't have that peer pressure within the industry that was coming at them from another mainstream outlet, which was Twitter. So that's the first. The second, though, is that Elon Musk is going to aggressively, you know, push it in a direction 
to sort of what he sees as a counterweight to the rest of, of the online landscape. He thinks the rest of the online landscape is reflexively liberal and that there needs to be a place that is specifically designed uh, to appeal to a, a, you know, an audience, essentially, of far-right individuals. And they have a stranglehold right now on the news industry. They really are needed in terms of for, for a, a very large part of it. It's how they get information. It's how they share it. Their own brands are tied to it. It's going to take a long time for people to unwind from it. So there's, there's very little pressure points. Musk is evaporating money. I mean, we, we were very engaged in this advertiser fight. And I mean, it's, we're looking at about two and a half billion dollars worth of revenue was gone already. Twitter's revenue was only about three and a half to four billion. It's probably more than that in the last month. So we're looking at more than 50, 60% of the revenue was gone just from advertising and he's still going to persist. And the other thing that's worrisome is that not only is he sort of building essentially a seismic of a change as when Fox News was born, but in this case on the online space, that he's going to implement new tools. A lot of the stuff that Bo was referencing before about these pockets like Telegram and elsewhere, he wants to build those capacities on Twitter um, to create these private channels and for communication. And he wants to build more pay services, which just allows for the transfer of, of money. And that's always a big factor, for, especially for the far-right extremists. So it, it's going to have long-term destructive effects. Twitter had a policy that prevented you from scaling all kinds of misinformation related to vaccines. It doesn't mean that it didn't exist, but it made it, a, it, it certainly lowered the ceiling for it to spread. One of the things that happened is Musk rolled back that policy and we saw a, a rapid pipeline change. Here's the, the big concern and the big takeaway. Is misinformation as bad for America as it seems? And what should our listeners keep in mind as they float through the cybersphere in terms of how do you determine what's truthful versus what is punditry masquerading as truth? I'll start with the last one because it's really important. Every listener matters in terms of what their, their own engagement. And that's because... You know, one of the things that often goes hand in hand with misinformation is nastiness, is vitriol, is venom. And the natural response when you see that kind of ugliness is to duck and cover. Most people just don't want anything to do with it, which is understandable. The problem with that is that by not engaging in some way, you're actually helping it because algorithms look at everybody's behavior. It's not media, not online media, it's social media. What you do matters in those spaces. And so when people check out when they don't recognize the fact that they're, particip they're listening, their consumption is tied hand in hand with their own engagement, they're actually helping rewire an, uh, the algorithms in a way that advantages far-right extremism, disinformation, misinformation. So that's a, just an appeal to say what they post, what they share, what they say actually makes a difference, not just for their individual audience, but in an aggregate, it's almost like voting. Every vote counts, the same thing here. Every engagement matters because the algorithm looks at everybody's behavior. So, so are you saying if you see yeah. something, say, say something? something? Yes, absolutely. And because if a platform thinks that a, that a, not a narrative is settled, um, it will privilege that particular perspective or that authoritative source, even if it's not authoritative. It will say, well, wow. You know, for example, for almost two years, this is a couple of years ago, Ben Shapiro was the single most authoritative, according to the internet and algorithms, the authoritative, single most authoritative and influential voice on reproductive health in the country. Nothing was even close. And that's because everything that he posted had an enormous amount of immediate uplift, very little pushback on it, 
which then reinforced the algorithm that this is a credible authoritative voice. It was all automatic. Now, if for our listeners who don't know who Ben Shapiro is, he is a far right individual who is basically, yeah, he's a he's a far right individual. I mean, summarizing Ben Shapiro without saying mean <laughs> things about him is almost impossible because he is. I try not I try not to say nasty things about him, even if they deserve it. But but Ben Shapiro is is just sort of an odious right wing character that really, really, really hates gay people. Um, and for the most part, doesn't really believe that women should uh, ha- not only have decisional authority, but really shouldn't have equality. He's pretty, pretty vocal and pretty vicious about that. He's also dumb. Like, I mean, he's treated as a smart person because he sounds smart and because he plays the violin. Somehow he's supposed to be a savant. But he actually, a lot of the things he says are just genuinely dumb. But he has a lot of money. There's a lot of money backing him. And, and as a result of that, he's building an entertainment industry. And it is an industry at this point. It's about $100 million worth of entertainment productions. And he will be a, a feature moving forward. So Ben Shapiro, bad guy, misinformer. I think what the essence, the essence of what you're saying, Ben Shapiro aside, because Megyn Kelly loves him, is right. if you don't push back, you're actually pushing up. Yes, that's a good way to put it. And so, it, you know, when it comes to the authoritative sources, you know, we are a big country. There's really only a couple papers. And newspapers still drive most of the conversation. When you look at cable news, talk radio, podcasts, on, even online, it's basically all regurgitated news from newspapers, a few print journalists. And so you can't go wrong with the tried and true publications. Um, your local news and Let the Sinclair is probably going to be pretty solid as well. Um, people should just be careful and you know, not just reflexively push on something, push something, especially if it sounds too good, but to be cautious. And I would just say that individuals' participation is what matters more than anything. Um, and if it's something is truly incredulous or ridiculous, it definitely helps to make sure that that's noted um, because it, it programs the algorithm. And I think not enough people really realize how much their own behavior is shaping the conditions around all of us. The right wing certainly understands that. They sort of have this amplification imperative built into their muscle memory, but we don't. And we really do need to, to build that muscle memory up because it really will make a big difference. Well, you know, you're a thousand percent right. But the other issue too with a lot of people is that they're worried that if they do push back, they could be putting themselves in the crosshairs of somebody and they don't want to they don't want to engage in that way because they're afraid that they could make themselves a target. Anyway, yes. Angelo, bottom line, it's good to fight and thank you so much for leading the fight in this area. Thank you. We loved having you and your insights are golden. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So great to see you, Angelo. Likewise. Yeah, thank you. Okay, it's time for the tin foil swan. Our paranoid takeaway to keep you safe online. So what do you want to talk about today? I know we talked about how to spot disinformation when we had Roy Wood Jr. on, but I, I think we need to drill down a little more. Me too. I concur. All right, cool. Narrow casting. That's what's on my mind. It's, a, it's an advertising term, actually, but it can be used in this context, too. Yeah, like narrow casting misinformation. Correct. And I imagine disinformation too. So who's going to talk to our listeners about narrowcasting? Well, like Bo said, narrowcasting is used in advertising. 
and it just means targeting a specific demographic using their information that's been gleaned from previous behavior and some known facts to craft an ad that you're more likely to click. I see all these dating ads on websites that tell me that there are lonely single women in my zip code. But if I happen to drive like an hour or two away, the same ads appear with the same people, but they all magically seem to have moved to my new location. And it's really silly, but I'm guessing enough people actually really do think the people in these ads are just a mile or two away to make it work. And they're sending you these ads because you've been married a long time? I mean, are they from Ashley Madison? Ordinarily, that wouldn't be a bad guess. In Travis's case, my guess would be he doesn't give advertisers much information to go on. So they know where he is. They know he's a he and they know how old he is. So they're just kind of shooting, uh, shooting darts in the dark here. Okay, so how does all this work with misinformation? Well, it makes it more effective. You get a stronger emotional response from people when they think the news they're hearing is happening close to them. And you can guess a person's politics, obviously, if you know where they live, if you've ever looked at an election map. Well, telling someone they're bad people in the world is not going to get your response. But if you tell someone there's a bad person right outside your window, they're going to panic. Yeah, that too. The more specific your content, the more likely your target is going to engage with it. You just need to know where to find your target. Look, let's not forget that a lot of cities and towns don't have local news anymore. And verifying facts can be pretty difficult. Not that anyone's doing a lot of checking these days. Right, and the entire idea is to send someone something that they already think and then amplify it, which is just what we discussed with Roy Wood Jr. Yeah, just remember, misinformation campaigns don't always cast a wide net. A lot of them work by targeting dozens of smaller groups, and then they just hope for an echo. Right, and Dittoheads missed the memo from Carl Sagan, who said, I think it was Carl Sagan, he said that uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So if I see something on like a local subreddit that says they're going to fix a pothole in my area, that's one thing. But if I see something saying that they're going to be doing door-to-door -door gun confiscations in my neighborhood, I'm going to really need a lot more information to back it up before I start getting worked up over that. You don't own a gun. No, but you know what I mean. A lot of this comes down to the same things we tell people about how to spot scams. Misinformation is a kind of scam. They want you to react in a panic before you have time to think or tell you that something's too good to be true. The end goal could be different, but misinformation uses the same playbook. So the best advice here, as Bo always says, go slow. Which is pretty funny considering that I almost never do that. But that's our tinfoil swamp. What the heck? With Adam Levin is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you like it, consider rating us on your favorite podcast service or writing a review. It really helps people find the show and makes me so happy. What the Hack with Adam Levin is a production of Loud Tree Media. It's produced by Andrew Steven. You can find us online at adamlevin.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin.